1: So, get ready, get ready, get ready. We're going to be bringing to you real talk concepts every week as we share some of our stories, best practices, as well as talk to guests about how they found success by doing extraordinary things in their everyday lives. On this episode, we have a very special guest join us today. April's going to give you the introduction, and we'll jump right into the episode.
2: Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold of Gold Enterprises LLC is an educator, higher education administrator, ordained minister, and highly sought-after consultant in the equity and inclusion marketplace. As an assistant provost of diversity and inclusion at a large public institution, her primary goal is to support the Division of Academic Affairs by attracting, advancing, and retaining diverse staff, faculty, and librarians. She has recent honors as a Baltimore Business Journal Leader in Diversity, a team lead, for Towson University's Truth and Racial Healing Institute, as well as a team lead for Towson University as the recipient of an Insight into Diversity, Higher Education Excellence and Diversity Award for 2020. Dr. Gold holds a Bachelor of Business Administration from James Madison University, a Master of Divinity from Eastern Mennonite University, and a Doctor of Education from the George Washington University. She has two amazing sons, Trey, nine, and Kendrick, six, in her lack of, quote unquote, spare time. She is also an Ironman 70.3 triathlete, an endurance swimmer, and a marathon runner. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Success in Black and White.
1: The podcast. We are back one more again. We are back one more again.
2: Yes. Coming to you live.
1: <laughs> From the house. I remember this I <laughs> You remember. and and we are not alone
2: we are not alone we are are excited to have a special guest with us I'm particularly excited because if you guys have been rocking with us for a while you know we've done an episode before on ghost mentors and this is one of my ghost mentors like the person who has no idea that they are (laughs) part of your life but they are (laughs) So I'm excited to introduce you guys to Dr. Shana Payne-Gold. She is the creator of Gold Enterprises, LLC. She's also an educator, and she happens to be the assistant provost of diversity and inclusion at a large public institution. Um, she is also, you guys already heard her bio, but I just want to bring this up because on top of everything else that she does, which I'm sure we're going to hear about, She's also an ordained minister, which I never knew, and we had an interesting conversation (laughs) about that because he has some direct ties to that as well. So we are so excited that you're here, and thank you for being with us. We think that our audience is going to get a lot from this interview tonight.
3: Oh, we have much to talk about, much to talk about. Thank you for having me. And um, I, I think the problem will be we might need to have like m- multiple episodes of this conversation because it's so much, we have so much overlap going on, uh, but I'm very happy to be here with both of you.
2: Uh, we're so excited. Well, we want to jump in because I don't want to waste any time. And I feel like the, uh, the questions that we have for you in the middle and that could potentially pop up might take a lot of our time. So Mm -hmm. we Mm want to know, you tell us about you, tell us a little bit about, I feel like this is an interview question. Like, Tell Mm -hmm. us about your personal life and your career. Like Basically, though, we want to know, how did you get from point A to point B? Because you are doing so many things. So give us kind of the overview
3: of Shauna. Yeah. Well, there's so much. Um, I'll start personally and then kind of move out from there. But um, I was born and raised in Southern Virginia, right outside of Lynchburg, Virginia, in this small town called Alta Vista. Uh, My parents still live there. My grandparents still live there. Um, And so how I kind of moved north over time, um, I went to undergrad at James Madison University out in the Shenandoah Valley. It's beautiful out there. Um, It's also freezing cold at night, no matter what time of year it is. So you're down in this valley and you need a winter coat like year round. Um, But that really changed my life. At the time that I was at JMU, I was actually in the majority, minority, if you will, because the majority of the campus were first generation college students. and I didn't even have the language to even describe that then, obviously, but everyone was new to this thing and trying to figure it out. So there were no dumb questions. Everyone had these unique experiences and backgrounds and parents that didn't know what to tell us to do or how to do it. So they were, uh, they were footing the bill. But other than that, there really wasn't that much that they could really share with us to help us out with this whole process. It's like, okay, you're smart, figure it out for yourself. Um, And so that was my experience there. And so then after that, I knew I wanted to get a master's degree in something, didn't know quite what. I had an undergrad degree in business, and so it made logical sense to get a master's in business administration. And I took the first semester of an MBA program and I said, This sucks. I don't want to do this. I don't like looking at financial spreadsheets. I don't like doing any of this. This is just no, no, thank you. Um, And so I looked right across the street and noticed that across the street, On the very same campus, they did have a seminary there. And I was like, "Mm, that's interesting. I know I don't want to be a pastor, but values and faith are very central to what I do. And I really would love to work with students. So how can I kind of mix this all together and make a career out of this thing? And so I literally got up and walked across the street to the seminary and said, how do I start school here? Like, how do I apply? What do I need to do? Do I need to like transfer from one side of the street to the other side of the street? How does this work? And so um, I arrived there and they said, oh, fill out this application and give us a little bit of time. Well, I filled out that application in June thinking there's no way they're going to let me in here. I mean, I had like subpar undergrad grades. I barely got out by the grace of God. Literally, Um, you know, I, I shaped up, you know, it's like most of us like. First year of grades suck. And then after that, you kind of shape up a little bit. But by that point, it's like the almost too late moment. Like you did great, but mathematically, eh, we'll see how this goes. And so, um, so <laughs> fast forward from June to late August, um, I was sitting in my residence hall because I was actually a hall director at that time, hoping and praying that something would work out with this graduate school thing. But I at least had my housing covered no matter what happened here. Mm. So I applied to this program, and on Thursday, prior to the Monday of the first day of classes, I got a phone call that said, hey, are you going to register for classes? (laughs) And I said, hey, what are you talking about? (laughs) Right, right, right. Like, this is like a true miracle. Like, this is better than, like, water to wine type stuff, right? And so when they called, I said, what do you mean register for classes? You didn't receive the acceptance letter that we sent to you back in June? no, I didn't get the letter back in June. So I had three days to get my life together to start this master's program. And so I said, okay, Lord, looky here, looky here. I'm going to take this semester by semester and see what happens. (laughs) If it's not for me the first semester, eh, at least I tried. And I literally took it step by step, semester by semester. And fortunately, was very successful. I really had a great time. and met plenty of people that were Um, trying to explore. You know, I think a lot of times people go into seminary trying to get more answers to questions, Mm -hmm. and you actually go and you end up with more questions than answers. Mm -hmm. Literally getting comfortable with exploring. And so for me, that was a fantastic experience. Um, I was there in a five-year program, and I ironically finished up in three years because, again, I was a hall director, which meant I would have housing 12 12 months out of the year, I actually had the only residence hall that housed summer camps and programs. So I always had work, huh. which meant that I could go to school during spring, summer, and fall. So wrap this thing up pretty quickly here. And so at that point, I said, okay, enough already. I bow to everyone that's in residence life. Let me just say that first. And I also think if you're in higher ed, you need to have some type of experience like that to really get all the layers to students. And so I wouldn't change that experience for anything, but I wouldn't stay another day either. Let me just put it like that. And so um, after that, I, um, I actually was recruited for a position at a very large public institution to serve as one of 23 campus ministers at the time. And so it was kind of like this backdoor approach of, I want to work with students about spirituality, but I don't want to get a, a second or third theology degree at all. And so that was really my way of kind of creating a vocation rather than doing a traditional vocation. Um, and so then fast forward, um, I served there. I was actually serving as a campus minister during the time of the Virginia Tech shootings. And let me just share how interesting that whole process was. So I was one of 23 campus ministers. Each one of us maybe got an opportunity to preach or do the, the liturgy for the for the Sunday um, maybe once or twice per year. I mean, it's very rare that you get to do it because it's such a rotation. It was so many of us. It happened to be that my one time during that year was the Sunday immediately following the tech shootings. And so I had to get up there and explain to people how God is still divine and God knows what's going on and everything's going to be all right. But we just lost lives on a college campus. Yeah, that was Very difficult. Um, On top of that, being the only African-American campus minister on campus at that time. And so all of those extra burdens that I was kind of carrying, trying to figure that out Um, so that I I wouldn't trade those experiences for anything, because it really shows you how to um, how to guide people and shepherd people when you really don't have all the answers. But you know that there's something in control much larger than yourself and larger than these campuses. Um, And so I wouldn't trade that experience for the world. And so then after that, after I was a campus minister, when you're on a grant-funded position, the money runs out at some point, point. Um, and you kind of know that. And so I was figuring out, okay, what's the next step for me? Um, and so I just randomly applied to a position um, that was at a smaller public institution, and I said, okay, let's see what happens. It's for the associate director position in a multicultural center. Let's just see what happens. No, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm a quick learner. It'll be all right. All right, okay. So I applied for this position, and the dean of students, I mean, harasses me. Like, we need you to come on campus for this interview within the next 48 hours. Can you make it here? Eh, eh. You know, I'm kind of giving a lot of excuses. I don't know, maybe, what have you. Um, and so finally, he, he calls back the last time, and he says, no, I need you here by 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. Can you get here? Okay. See what happens. And so I drive up to this interview. I'm not even sure I'm answering these questions in remote fashion to what I need to be talking about. Like he's asking about student development theory, all these other things. And I'm like, okay, I just learned that a couple of weeks ago in my doctoral program. So maybe I can look at a few notes really quickly and respond to your question. And so apparently I did fairly decently because before I could even finish the drive back home the following day, I got a call with the offer for the job. Now, this is where it gets really good. This is where it gets juicy. So I take this position as associate director thinking, oh, I'm so excited. The director will come back from FMLA. She's just had a, her uh, first son, I believe it was. So I'm so excited to come back and really learn because that was my goal was to kind of be men- mentored by her. And so three weeks into my time starting this new position, she lets our dean of students know, hey, I'm enjoying this parent life. I ain't coming back. Have a good time with that. See ya. So she didn't come back. Now, so within three weeks, I've now become the director of what was called the James Farmer Multicultural Center. And if anyone knows the Freedom Riders and Dr. King and all of those movements, whenever you look up, even uh, more recently with John Lewis, and you've seen some of this um, <laughs> kind of the the throwbacks to everything that uh, Mr. Lewis did in his lifetime, you'll see some photos, and those photos include Dr. James Farmer. He was the chief architect of the Freedom Rides. He actually was not at the March on Washington with Dr. King because he was imprisoned at the time. And so the Multicultural Center is named after Dr. Farmer. Um, And so given that, I'm like, I, I haven't even really processed how significant this is right now. So it's almost like someone saying, congratulations, you're the executive director of the King Center. It's like, wait, what? What just happened here? Um, and so that's kind of how I stumbled and fell into my multicultural center role, which actually was my first um, professional role in diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I had to learn things really quickly. Um, we were in a makeshift office at that time because we were building a student center and so forth. So all of that was going on at once while I'm in my doctoral program crazy. Um, and so I spent time there for a few years. I learned so much about even creating chief diversity officer positions and all these other things that I learned the back end of because we were trying to figure things out. Um, and so after that, um, I, within what, maybe two and a half, three years of my time being there, That's when I got engaged and we moved closer to the Maryland side of things because he was working at the Pentagon at the time. And we know how Northern Virginia traffic is just not to be played with. And so we wanted to get on the other side of the Beltway. And so I, once again, randomly applied for this position as the associate director of another multicultural center. This one was for academic support. And I was thinking to myself, okay, now I know a lot about student diversity. I know a lot about student subcultures, but I don't know a lot about academic support, whether it's running a tutoring center or even academic affairs. I don't know how this works. I'm going to have to figure this thing out. And so once again, I interview for the position. The director calls me back before I can finish my drive back home, says, hey, do you want to accept this position? I said, oh, my God, what are you talking about? You don't want me. You really don't want me. He's like, no, I really want you. I really want you. Um, and so ended up taking this position at a very large public institution here in Maryland. And um, just to give you a, com- a point of comparison, I was moving from a public, small public institution that served between 3,000 and 4,000 students total to a larger campus that served about 13,000 students of color out of all of the student population. Wow. So that the measurement is quite different, right? So the, the volume was ridiculous. Um, Again, I learned a lot about supervision. I learned a lot about um, really about academic affairs and how the academic um, area of any university works because I had been in student affairs for so many years. Um, And so that was just an amazing experience. I wouldn't trade um, for the world. And my supervisor still is one of my greatest mentors. Um, He studied under Rita Hardiman and a bunch of wonderful folks, William Cross and so forth, that are some of the people that created the theories that we now study about diversity and inclusion. So I learned so much um, from working with him and I could probably call him right now if I needed to, if there were anything that I might need for support. So um, then after about 10 years of that, um, I was trying to figure out, okay, so I feel kind of stuck because I'm not quite sure if I want to go over to the faculty side. Um, I've interviewed for a few positions here on campus, and it just didn't seem to be the right fit, so what should I do next? Well, my best friend, who was then the inaugural vice president of inclusion and equity um, at another large institution, Sent this job posting. She emailed it out to me and a bunch of other people and said, "Hey, if there's anybody that you think would fit this position, you know, send it out to your folks. We know you have wide networks." I'm looking at this posting like you are like the worst BFF in history because why would you not consider me for this role right now? This is like the first time I actually felt confident in saying, "Oh, that's that's me. That's it. Like you know, it's 75 percent you can do it and 25 percent stretch, and so you're trying to think about whether you want to apply for it or not, and so. I applied for the position. She didn't know I applied for the position because I didn't tell her. I just applied for the position. And so lo and behold, after we got further on in the process, she she picks up the phone and she says, "Shauna, why didn't you tell me you were in the top five candidates for the position? I said, "Mm, I might just show up on campus one day. You never know, right? And so lo and behold, I'm coming for this uh, final interview, which was in uh, November or so of 20, I think it was 2018, um, November, and had this fantastic interview, really enjoyed myself. And I said, okay, I'm just leaving it to God now. I did the best I could do. I thought I did a great interview. We'll see how it goes. And so my supervisor, who was a great mentor at the time, he knew all about it, knew that I was looking to go to the next level, was extremely in support of this particular role. And so I'm waiting and waiting for them to get back to me. I'm like, I gotta tell them something. We're about to go on winter break. And we know winter break can be like three weeks. Um, and my supervisor at this time is about to go on this fantastic cruise. So I need to let him know something before he's out of commission for three weeks. And or else he'd be showing up to know associate director, right? So it's like, oh, what do you do? And so literally I get the phone call at about 9.15 on a Wednesday morning. My supervisor is boarding a ship by 10 o'clock that morning. So I have about 35, 40 minutes of turnaround time to let him know that it's a wrap for Shauna. And I will be back for maybe, let's see, two days in January. And then I'm off to my next campus. (laughs) Have a great cruise. Have a great cruise. (laughs) Have a good time, right? (laughs) Drink heavily. Thank you very much. And so Yeah. And so that's how I ended up in my current position now. Um, Like I said before, I had lots of support in that role. And, you know, so for me, it's been this path where, again, it was kind of stumbling forward. It definitely was not planned. So anyone that asked me, what's your career trajectory? I'm like, trajectory? What are you talking about? And you just fall, you just keep falling. Um, And so that's kind of uh, how I got to where I am now. And I so love the campus that I'm on and the work that I do, because I get to kind of used 23, 24 years of student affairs experience to talk to a bunch of academics who don't know student affairs at all. And so I'm kind of the uh, interpreter between all of these folks, and it just really has um, been a true blessing. And so that's kind of the long-winded answer to that question. But it's um, a story that I love to talk about because every time I think about it, I realize how much I didn't know what I was doing. Um, And yet it still seemed to work out.
1: I took away so many nuggets. So many nuggets.
3: Ooh, ooh, what'd you get? What'd you get? You were telling
1: the <laughs> story, and I was just like, ooh, a nugget. Mm-hmm. Ooh, a nugget. So <laughs> I would probably yeah. say one of the biggest things, and we talk about it all the time between us, is taking advantage of the opportunities mm-hmm. when they present themselves. And and one of the things that I really took away from you know what you're saying is. Like we talk about it and we dwell on it a lot and the opportunity is there and it's gone before you can even, you know, make a decision. Mm-hmm. And it could be the perfect opportunity, the right opportunity for you. But I don't know if it's self-doubt or if it's mm-hmm. not what you planned. And you kind of talked about that a little bit, like your trajectory. You're just kind of like, oh, like this right <laughs> here in the moment is right for me. And, you, you know, your faith, I heard that a, a lot within that. And you kind of went for it. And, and I was just kind of picking nuggets. I was like, when those opportunities are there, mm-hmm. like trust in yourself, trust in your process, trust in what you know about you and the things that are important to you and make moves. Um, and that's kind of what mm-hmm. I was taking from that. And, and the listeners, you know, hopefully I picked it out and kind of pinpointed it for you. But, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. sometimes it's so easy to get caught up in a trajectory or what you have sought out or what you have planned for yourself. And um, you miss opportunities which can help you get to where you're supposed to be. Um, and I think you kind of hit on that. So mm-hmm. that's when I was taking away those nugget pieces. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, my goodness. Like, wow. And the story obviously was. But
3: you, Well, and, you know, you brought up a good point, too, because that's one of the things I realized that movement kind of started happening um, as I was prepared. And so and let me give you that another small nugget with that, too, is that um, there was never. A moment where I didn't have, for example, my CV or my resume ready. Mm. Like, there was never a point in time where it wasn't updated um, or I didn't add something. Like, I made it my business to um, uh, always have a a ritual of updating it, like if something major happened. So, it might be as frequently as the end of every month, for example, where I would update it with things that I was doing. Um, So, you know, given that things like that happening where Um, you know, a lot of people, they miss out on opportunities because they don't have their CV or they don't have their uh, portfolio available or ready. Um, And so for me, I just tried to always be ready, um, even with something as simple as your CV or your portfolio. Oh man. Yeah. It's time to update ours.
1: I know. Right. As you were saying (laughs) that I was like,
2: Oh, it's time. I was like,
1: she's speaking to me. Yeah. Like I update it when I think I'm going to vote. And when that opportunity is presented to you, like you, you know, you're being recruited,
2: And then you're like, Oh man, I gotta
3: hurry. And (laughs) it might not be right. Oh, right. And I don't even trust my memory to remember, you know, when you're very busy in your career, it's hard to even remember all the good stuff that you do. And so it's like, let me jot that in real quick. Like, you know, almost treating it like a living document that you're updating on a regular basis. Um, And so, you know, that's one of the things I did. And the moment that I did that, that's when all these opportunities started opening up and coming up for me. Um, And you know, folks didn't have to wait a week for me to get myself together because it was already together. So that's one thing that I've really uh, tried to stay faithful to. um, Even if I'm not job searching, like right now, I'm not looking for anything. I love what I do, but I still keep that because I'm so afraid that I'm going to forget some of the things that I did that are really integral to my career. And so I just use that as a living document.
1: Awesome.
2: That's a great point.
1: Yeah,
3: I love it. Well, we do. We want to ask you,
2: and very specifically, in your roles with multicultural centers in institutions of, of higher ed, we have a lot of people who listen to us who do work in higher ed. Um, we have a lot of people who don't work in higher ed, um, and I think that this summer has really brought to light a lot of the um i hate to put it this way but almost like the inequities that we see within like diversity and inclusion initiatives in different organizations and i think that's just you know it really came to light it really came to the forefront and so something that we've talked about often in the past 2 or 3 months now on the podcast even is the things institutions or organizations are doing are sometimes seen as more like uh, performative or um, placating at times when it comes to really exploring diversity, inclusion, and equity, and we really are wondering, like, what are the what are the things that organizations can do to be transformative, to really like take actual action steps. In terms of really exploring diversity, really understanding inclusion and inclusive practices for for your employees or for your students or your stakeholders who you're serving, um, how can we be transformative? What are some of the ways that we can put actual mm-hmm. action to practice? Because we know that people are listening and mm-hmm. probably a lot have a lot of the same questions. And I'll even make a reference to yeah. um, Daryl. <laughs> Daryl was so frustrated um, probably two or three months ago that he was like, if I hear one more person say task force, <laughs> I'd be like, I'm going to call it tax force because they're taxing and they don't do a lot usually. So <laughs> we're curious from your, you know, professional expertise. Yeah. What are your thoughts on this?
3: Yeah. that oh, I love that tax for, I need to write that down tax force. I'm going to start using that. No, but I, I hear you because what, what ends up happening in my in my experience and especially when I kind of critique my own institutions where I've worked previously is that oftentimes we do a lot of work. So the, the tax force that we're talking about here, um, they do a lot of research looking at data. They do a lot of looking at best practices. They bring in a lot of voices and have lots of conversations that become very circular conversations, and then we put together a really lovely report that's sent off to someone, and then we don't know what happens to it, okay? That's what usually happens. I think the steps that need to happen beyond that, I I still think that that's valuable, but it still falls flat on its face if you don't have, and I know this sounds so um, uh, elementary, um, but... If you don't have basic timelines in place for when things should happen, if there's not someone specific that's responsible for making it happen, and if there's no assessment or accountability measures to prove what success really looks like, right? So that's when everything falls flat on its face. Um, And I might even throw a fourth piece in there where there's no communication plan for how we're going to share with people. This is the plan of what we're going to do, when we're going to do it, how we're going to do it who's responsible for it, who's behind is on the line if it doesn't happen. That's part of transparency. And so what usually ends up happening is that we've done all of this work. And yes, some people might be executing on some of these plans, but there's no measurement to find out whether is this really working or not. Right. So, so for example, if I put into a DEI plan that, Oh, we want to increase, Um, diverse faculty hires for our entire institution well what does that mean does that mean a percentage does that mean a particular area are we talking about a particular um, major or a college that sees underrepresented in very different ways Um, so for example um, underrepresented in education means you're you probably don't have enough men and you probably don't have enough men of color Mm -hmm. Um, if however if I'm looking at um, the stem fields then I'm looking for everyone of color. They're they're underrepresented. Or let's say I'm looking specifically in, let's say, maybe even, I don't know, uh, the health professions, for example. Overwhelmingly female. So underrepresented will be different in different areas and different disciplines, and so I need to know what are we really talking about when we're talking about underrepresented? What are we really talking about when we're trying to measure success? And if it's not measurable, then it's just flat out not a goal. I mean, I think that's something we all learned in freshman year when we started setting goals for ourselves in college. If it's not measurable, it's not a goal. So for us, I think, um, you know, we have to get very comfortable with assessment that's formative assessment. It's assessment where we're measuring things and it's telling us what to do next. I don't care for measurement for the sake of measurement because then somebody throws it in a really pretty report and it never gets used. Mm -hmm. But when we're looking at assessment and really splicing that data to then tell us, okay, what do we do next? That's a different conversation. And so again, going back to that living document concept, every assessment report should be a living document. It should be telling us what to do next semester, next year, next quarter. Um, And if not, then it's just very pretty and a lot of people really spend a lot of time and... Um, you know, putting my, my business degree brain uh, back in. Um, I oftentimes think about task force, tax forces, um, <laughs> that have all, these, have all these people in there. And as I'm sitting around these large committee meetings, I'm looking around thinking to myself, how many hours are we putting into this project? How much is everybody around this table getting paid? How much did we just spend for a report that we're not trying to execute on? I think that's basic math. I mean, my my six-year-old and nine-year-old love math. They could probably calculate that for us right now. So for those of us who are executives, especially those of us in senior admin with terminal degrees, that seems to be a no-brainer to me. Um, I do like, of course, inclusivity when it comes to hearing various voices, but I also think that when you have a 55-person committee, really, is anything going to get done? Not necessarily. Um, And so, you know, therefore, we get to a place where we start to stall out a bit, and so then we do, we are actually tax forces, because we're really spending a lot of money, and we're not really moving in the direction that we want to move in. I love all that. That was good. I know. <laughs> and I'm just thinking, I mean,
2: you're taught, you're speaking my language with because I'm an analyst, and my job is to take the data and put it into reports for people. <laughs> you know better <laughs> like, than I do. Exactly. But right. no, but now here you go. So what are you gonna do with it? You know, like I hope mm-hmm. you do something because I spent all this time. So I'm um, exactly. really speaking my language there.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. My personality and the way that I am, I am result driven. So I like Mm -hmm. the results. I like the actionable items and how can we get from point A to point B. Um, Mm -hmm. And in that episode that April was mentioning, I I said, when we get in those, you know, tax forces and we sit in the room and we're around the table with 30 people, to me, it feels like we're just sitting around seeing who can say their idea, (laughs) the loudest and the best. (laughs)
3: <laughs> mm-hmm. oh my goodness yes absolutely well and, you know when I when I sit in those rooms because I, let, well let me take a step back uh, now in my current role I realize that when I'm sitting in those rooms especially when I'm sitting in those committee meetings I have to hold together both my both my privilege and my oppression at the same time in those rooms right mm-hmm. so I realize that yes you know depending on who's in the room as well You know, yes, I'm walking in as a black woman. Yes, I'm walking in as a mother. Yes, you know, all these other things add to this list of things. Um, But then I also realized, too, that as much as I'm just, this is my sister girl, Shauna from around the way type person. That's my own personality. I also realized that people, when they're with me in some of those committee meetings, they see the assistant provost for diversity and inclusion walking in. Mm -hmm. They don't see just Shauna, my girl from around the way. They don't see that. And so given that, I'm also very aware of when people might be watering down language that I'm like, no, I, I really want to know what you think. I, I, don't, I wouldn't have asked you to come here if I really didn't want to mm-hmm. know what you think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so given that helping people to feel comfortable um, with speaking their mind, um, speaking their experience, knowing that I'm going to value their experience and we're not just shooting the breeze here because we don't have anything else better to do, um, that I consider it part of that, um, that formative data as well that we're pulling together to make the best decisions for students and faculty and staff. And so, you know, given that I, I have to sometimes break through some of that privilege that I know is there that might um, kind of damper some of what folks would have to say, um, which, and I've never had that experience before until, you know, more recently where I've been in supervisory roles and now in senior administration, where you have to be very cognizant of what type of energy you bring into that space and what comes along with the org chart that represents you. Um, And so given that, you know, what are you bringing into that room that, you know, you may think, oh, it's, you know, it's just Daryl coming in. No, it's Daryl, the fill in the blank, the long title that, you know, supposedly has a bunch of zeros behind the note. No, that's not what we're after here. Um, We're more so about what's the value that everybody brings into the room. And I think that's most important.
1: So I'm the wild card. So here's the question. I was, I was listening to what you were saying. And I think that's very important. In your role and um, your position, how do you communicate that to other people that may feel like they are not in a position of power or um, the confidence to speak openly? Um, mm-hmm. how, do you, how, do, how do you make them feel like they're able to do that? What is your approach to that?
3: Mm, Great question. So when, let me give a little bit of history, let me be a a higher ed nerd for a second, then I'll bring it all up to speed. So higher ed nerd, what I usually do is very similar to what, um, what historically black colleges and universities used to do with students when it comes to advising. Advising at historically black colleges and universities is very, what I love, by the way, so I'm not saying this in a derogatory way. It's very in your face. It's very aggressive. It's very go after the student. No, I'm not gonna wait and assume the student is gonna come and find my office if they need help. I'm gonna go after them and go get them and see what they need. If they don't need anything, hallelujah. If they do need something, I'm here and I wanna make sure they know that I'm here to support them no matter what. That's intrusive advising at a predominantly white institution. That's normal at an HBCU, right? And so with me and my approach, especially as a DEI professional, I, I'm very aware. So let's say, for example, go back, going back to our tax, our tax force. I just love that tax force. Yeah. Um, going back to that, you know, if I'm in a committee meeting of 25 people, I'm very aware of who's in the room, who's not in the room, who's speaking up, and who's not speaking up. So after that meeting, I've probably written down a few notes here and there. I know that oh, I need to follow up with April because she didn't mention too much in that meeting. So let me just shoot her a quick email or maybe even pick up the phone and call and say, hey, April, you know, I really appreciate your involvement in, in the tax force, um, but I also wanted to get your perspective on some things because I realized that it might not have been enough time for you to share with me your perspective. What do you think about ABC? Um, and that's what I'll do after a meeting. And lots of times um, the individual, um, let's say they may not have very much to add, which is completely fine, but I would say the majority of the time they've had things that they wanted to express that they weren't sure whether it was going to be confidential or not. There may have been other people in the room that also had a power play, so it may not have even been about me, assistant provost of anything, um, but they may not have felt comfortable in that space. And so when I approach them in confidentiality and ask them these questions, then I can take the lesson without taking the person, if you will. So whatever their additional theme is that we maybe didn't touch upon in that task force, I'm able to take that back and fold that back into the information, which then becomes formative data for what I want to do next. And so I have no problem doing that. And I've done that, gosh, countless times when I've noticed that someone may not speak up, um, but I think they have major contributions. And I wouldn't have asked them to be on the doggone committee if they didn't. Um, And so I might do some um, intrusive administration, if you will, by reaching back out to them and, and finding out what their perspectives are. I love that because something that we've talked about before
2: on the podcast, and we've even talked about it in like division meetings, like yeah. over over chat, is something will come up and somebody will say, "Well, we want this to be a very safe space," mm-hmm. and that's his biggest pet peeve because he's like, "Safe for who?" Like, who, who do you intend for this space to be safe for? And so I love that you do that because you're right. It's not every space just because somebody says it's safe or you should feel comfortable here. Not everybody is going to feel comfortable or safe in that space to say what they feel like they need to say or to contribute in a positive manner to the conversation, um so I yeah. love that. Yeah, that's great leadership.
3: Well, and and both of you both of you are on point with that whole um safe space piece because I was reading something I, I wish I could remember. Um I read so much in a day. Um, but what I do recall about what I read was that it's almost a point of privilege to say hey, this is a safe space because it's like, who are you to determine what's safe for me or for someone else? So, you know, that's not your place to say what's safe for me. I will determine whether it's safe or not. And so what a lot of professionals have been doing, especially for those of us that do kind of like um, difficult dialogues, of course, but just in administration in general, many dialogues are difficult. And so given that, um, bringing it up to people that it may Uh, God forbid, it may never be a safe space for everyone in this room, but we're asking folks to be brave in this space instead and take a calculated risk even. So we're not saying that you got to jump out a window with, you know, a comment or something that you might not have said anywhere else, but what we call uh, comfort plus one, whatever your comfort level is, take one step out of that level to take a very small risk of sharing information that you might not have shared in the past. And started to flex that muscle and kind of get used to that type of sharing process. And I think that's a a great way to kind of coach people into into becoming more comfortable. And again, I I like to stress very clearly that I want to be aware of the space I take on in the room as an administrator. But I also want to be aware that there might be contextual dynamics in the room that I'm not even aware of. Where Daryl may not want to say something because April's in the room. April may not want to say something because whoever's in the room. And that has nothing even to do with me, but I'm honoring history and context at the same time, which necessitates some of that intrusive administration of, we may need to have a side conversation and that's completely fine too.
1: Mm. Oh my
3: gosh. Mm. I know.
2: I know. It's so good. (laughs) I can't wait for people to hear this. I feel like we've talked a lot about um, some of those I'm gonna I'm gonna do a wild card. Oh yeah! I never do. I never Ooh, do wild God. cards. I know. I know. I
3: shock and awe. Shock and awe. I know.
2: Shock. <laughs> well, we we talked a lot about what are great action steps and what what works, and we talked a little bit about barriers. I am curious. Well, first, before I throw a wild card, I am curious: Are there any barriers that you see that are are barriers to really being in the, on the right track with diversity, equity, and inclusion within any organization, but specifically in higher education?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, barriers to being on the right track. Well, I, I would say a, a few things that are barriers. Um, I think, uh, let me recall back to a conversation I had last, last week with a bunch of educators. One of the biggest barriers that they discovered, which I think would be the case in higher ed or even K through 23, um, I would say one of the biggest barriers is that we translate care, compassion, and empathy for everybody, the students, faculty, staff, especially people that are underrepresented, we translate that into the actual work. So I can walk around caring all day that Daryl is a successful Black man in higher education because I know he's, you know, a a needle in a haystack when it comes to his field or his area, et cetera. I can care all day. But if I'm not actually doing things around that to support a Daryl on my campus, that's when my care, compassion, my empathy, et cetera, isn't producing any fruit. Let me put it that way. Um, So for example... For me, and maybe it's because I'm the mom of two black boys, they're nine and six, and so I always have a bias and a leaning towards men of color, period, but I'm gonna be very intrusive when it comes to looking at a department or looking at a, um, any institution. I wanna know how many men of color do you have on your campus? I wanna know. That's probably like one of the first uh, data points that I even look at for most campuses because I know how much you care about that dem- demographic or not. Um, I had, uh, when I first arrived at a previous institution, this this dean in particular was bragging because they had increased the number of men of color across the entire campus. Well, I realized that the percentage that was given to me, the majority of those men of color were in athletics, which is nothing wrong with that. But we had one professor who was in, and wasn't even a full professor. I think this person was like a, a lecturer, wasn't even on the tenure track. Um, who identified as a black male in another department. So they ended up hiring, I think, 20 men of color, but only one of them was an academic. But you're taking taking the power of that larger number to say, look at what we've done here. I'm like, wait a minute, you haven't done very much if I'm looking at the real data here. I don't see very many men of color who are academics walking into this institution, so I still have a problem with these numbers. Um, so if you're not looking closely enough, you know that can be a barrier. So I think the care, empathy, compassion around these issues still doesn't translate to action. We still have to kind of make sure the rubber meets the road on some of those things. So I would say that's one barrier. Um, I think the the second barrier to things is that um, when we, how can I say? I always harp on resources, and I think people hear resources as just money, and I don't want it to be just money. Resources, meaning, of course, money, time, human beings, you know, all of that um, necessitates some attention if you're very serious about diversity and inclusion. I had one faculty member who was a tenure track faculty member at a previous institution that said, We, um, it really takes too much time to recruit diverse faculty members, so we just post it in the Chronicle and we'll see what happens. Well, when I broke down the data, which I know April will love. When I broke down the data on certain things, that really helped them to understand how we are literally looking for needles in haystacks. So for example, one of my my great examples of a hire previously was um, we were looking for uh, lots of diversity in our STEM fields in particular. And during that previous year, Daryl, you will just love this stat here. This tells you needle in a haystack there were only seven black men in the entire country that graduated with a terminal degree in mathematics. Seven in the country. I didn't even believe it myself. I actually called, I called the owners of the database to make sure that it wasn't a mistake and they said, no, ma'am, it was not a mistake, right? And so when I found out that there were only seven black men in the entire country that graduated with this particular terminal degree, and I found out that one of them live down the street from my institution i called my higher-ups and said hey just wanted to let you know there's a black unicorn down the street what can i do to go get him i will look i will be like james brown i will go beg. please please will you please come and teach on my campus what do i need to do to get you here And my higher-up said, absolutely, go ask for numbers and find out what we can do to see if we can get this person on the tenure track at our institution. Miracles still happen. Uh, We ended up getting this person on the campus. But once again, that's a needle in a haystack. And so when people find out the data that the the numbers aren't there, the pipeline is severely flawed and leaking, what can we do to patch up some of those holes? I think that's a big barrier as well is that we're not looking – and, and we're saying, oh, well, no one's really interested in coming to this area of the country. Or, oh, no one's really interested in coming to this institution because of its history, what have you. Not so. Not so. Um, and, and I think that's even more so, especially for institutions that are in very diverse regions of the country and very diverse states in the country. People are there just waiting to be tapped on the shoulder. And so some of the traditional methods of reaching out for the sake of diversity will not happen. Sometimes you have to go out and really, you know, shake the bushes and say, "Hey, we are very interested in what you have to offer to our institution. Would you please come? And would you please be a um, would you be a champion, hopefully, um, of diversity? Not by having to be a diversity expert, but just simply by coming and being yourself and being a model to our students, another faculty member of what excellence looks like when it comes to inclusivity and in your field. And so that's what we ask for. So I think that can be a barrier as well as the the build it and they will come type feeling of resources because if that were the case they would have come they're not coming we have to go get them and so what does it mean to have a little bit of a different perspective when it comes to providing resources if we're really serious about st- structural diversity of numbers um, which then starts to lead into some of the uh, atmosphere and climate on our campuses as well
1: I think that is amazing I think that's awesome to have that type of support um, as I was listening to you kind of tell that story to have that type of support where um, you could go out and do that. Um, And and I'll share a story really quick um, for the sake of time about um, me serving as someone that was hiring a position. And I was Mm -hmm. concerned just because I had numerous black men that applied and that made it to campus as finalists. And I was just like, Oh my gosh, like, I feel like they're going to say something because I'm bringing all these black men to campus, the interview for this. Was, like I was nervous. And, and I actually sat down with my, my supervisor and said, Hey, like I'm feeling nervous about this because I know we can only bring so many to campus. And out of that number, you know, 80% of them are black men. Like, am, am I good? Am I okay to do this? And, and the fact that you had that support to go out and, and, you know, solicit, I think is very important. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what I took away from that. And I, I think that's awesome.
2: And you already know, yeah. I love the data piece, but there is, you know, we've talked often in the past couple of months about implicit bias as well. And mm-hmm. so there's a really great article. Um, I think it was either a New York times or a Washington post, I think, where they talked about somebody, you can show somebody their implicit bias. And it really doesn't matter. It doesn't actually change behavior over time. But if you show them the data, especially in large organizations, especially at like the C-suite or executive level, data is what will actually, it may not change thinking or attitudes, but it typically will work to change the behavior or the outcome or the decisions being made. Mm So I'm like, well, yes, but that was a perfect, I mean, Mm -hmm. your, your, your barriers really wrap that up into a nice little bow there.
3: Well, you know, here's my, can, can I get on a soapbox for like two seconds and then I promise, right? And I think it fits together what you're both talking about is that I think the reason why I was relatively successful in my previous institution before I came to my current institution was that it was a combination that was a weird one a combination of the diversity equity and inclusion background and experience and then i ca- i got very fortunate while i was in my doc program i had a fantastic friend who was writing his entire dissertation on cast standards and assessment and so i learned everything i could from jesse well i don't find too many people that put together the dei experience and the assessment experience mm-hmm. and that ends up being the problem so mm-hmm. you end up having Assessment folks that don't know diversity, diversity folks that don't know assessment, and then they don't communicate with one another, and then I'll take it to a whole separate level, then you have people who may not identify with diversity, equity, and inclusion concerns, and they might be privileged themselves, and they may feel very, how can I say, they may feel some kind of way about requiring measurement and assessment of diversity work. Because it's on this particular level, it is the, let's be grateful that someone is doing the work at all. And so Mm -hmm. this feeling of assessment being punitive. Mm -hmm. And we don't want that feeling at all of people. And so I, I think that's part of the bigger challenge is that we don't have that good combination of both diversity and assessment at the same time working together. I think that's a major problem
2: yeah and to and to get up with you on the soapbox it's really just been very recently that even i've learned like critical race theory has a huge part when you look at analysis of data because if you are an analyst and you're not taking the time to break down into dig into demographics because You just want to keep everything aggregated and you want to report on a bell curve. That's a big issue because then you're not finding out Mm -hmm. what's happening to students or stakeholders or whoever within the margins and you're completely doing a disservice. And so even I'm like, I'm just, Mm -hmm. I've been discovering this over the past like four or five months, but that's so important. And it really does. It contributes to the data set that you can actually give to decision makers and say, I know we typically report this in aggregate, but we really need to, we really need to explore the margins here.
3: So. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, yeah, and um, my, my, my master's and doctoral level students know that I am really adamant about asking about the asterisk. Mm-hmm. Anything- is an asterisk on a report. I want to know what's up with that asterisk. So if you're saying, oh, these are, we have an asterisk beside Native Americans because they're less than 1%, well, I still want to know who's on the dog on campus, period. And I want it broken down by tribe, if you have it. I want everything. I want everything. I want it all, because there's a story to be told behind the asterisk. I think that's so important. And and yeah, uh, April and I, we're right here. We're, this is why I love you so much. I think, <laughs> we're doing the I thing, for sure, absolutely. I want to know about the asterisk. Yep, I literally, we've actually had Those conversations marginalized groups, about
1: asterisk. that's, that, <laughs> she skips everything else and goes right to that.
3: There you go, exactly. Well, and you know, I noticed it when I was, so I was looking at reports at my previous institution of both students and faculty, and this was longitudinal data that was looking at the last decade, right? Mm-hmm. And so we had these departments that were bragging about, oh, we had this increase in students or we, you know, we had this increase in faculty, et cetera. And so I was looking at one data set that said, oh, well, we had a gain of N of five faculty of color. And I'm like, I'm calling BS on that because you lost seven in the same time period. So what are you talking about here? Nobody wants to have that conversation. And, and I am truly not a guru. Like April, you're probably much more well-versed than I am when it's, when I'm asking about data sets, but common sense is telling me that, yeah, you feel proud that you gained five, but you lost seven. So that's a net of negative two. So what are we really talking about here? What are we I, talking love, about here? I love that. that. That's not okay. It's not okay. And, and to me, it's, it feels as if it's padding the numbers in a way that's, you know, uh, as we always say, the hero always tells the story, right? Well, I don't wanna be a hero of that particular story because that's leading an entire campus astray. So I wanna look at the breakdown. So prior to my arrival at my previous institution, you know, folks looked at, again, in aggregate, they were looking at aggregate change over time and they weren't looking at drill downs to specific departments or specific majors and so forth. And so when I'm looking at certain departments and majors, well, an entire department may have had, or let's say an entire college, may have had an increase, incremental increase in this number of underrepresented folks. But then I'm also looking at departments that have literally never had a person of color as a faculty member in the entire history of the university. So who's really looking at data? And I don't work in institutional research. I just ask a whole bunch of questions that make people feel uncomfortable. (laughs) I don't work there. I'm just asking. And so when I start to ask these questions, I find things out. So, you know, One of the things that I did um, when I first arrived at my current institution is I started prioritizing some of that. I started drilling down into, let me see the college, let me see the department, and who are the people that aren't there? Because that's where we need to start. These are the holes where we need to start. No, I really don't care that you had a net increase of 10% in your department because you actually lost 25 in the last 10 years. So what are we going to do here? I I ask the questions that people don't want answered. Um, And I think what's pretty cool, too, is that most of the time when I call institutional research, I know my question is going to take a minute because they don't even have like a spreadsheet model of what I'm about to ask. (laughs) I know what I'm doing. Great. Look, I made all my money on that day because they can't give me a quick answer because they've never thought about the question. That's the issue. And so I have no problem waiting for my data. And when I get it, I'm going to ask a bunch of questions. They probably hate to see my extension when it rings. Uh, They probably hate to see my emails. But, you know, that's how we have this formative data that tells us, you know, it's a roadmap of what we do next. It's a roadmap. And what really gets me is when we don't ask the questions. And if I call, this happened at my previous institution, not my current one. um, My previous institution, I would ask questions. And when the answer comes back that they never collected that data set, (laughs) <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm with you daryl it's like the cartoon of tom and jerry where the, the steam comes out of the ears like what do you mean you never asked about native American? what do you mean you never asked about first gen what do you mean what do you mean you never asked about military but what do you mean that you didn't do- what uh, no it, it's beyond comprehension that the question wasn't even asked and so you know given that that tells me what a campus really cares about did you ask about them you know, if, if you were to come home, April, and the house was quiet and you were expecting Daryl there, you would walk in the door and say, where is D- Let me pick up the phone and call and see where he is. Let me see what's going on. I need to ask and find out where he is. And we do the same doggone thing with data, where if we care about somebody, we ask where they are in the data. If we don't care about them, we don't ask about them in the data. Man, that's bad. Don't. We just don't. We come in to find Daryl. Where is Daryl? We need to find <laughs> Daryl. All right? That's what we're trying to do. But- When it comes to our students or our faculty, if it's a particular demographic that we don't care about or haven't thought about, we're just simply not asking the question. And so I love it when I start asking about data sets and I find out what they've actually been collecting what they haven't been collecting. You've been collecting information about sophomores and sophomore slump, but you haven't been asking questions about first-generation college students. Mm. Why is that? Mm. I'm the one that they hate to see come in at institutional research, I'm sure.
1: Oh, I it.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, oh, so listen, I, I want to do this and all of this is so good. We've been giving them so much, like for our listeners, y'all are getting this free, like I know. <laughs> this knowledge, this information, she's just dropping nuggets everywhere. So I don't want to discredit, I don't want to discredit you. And I definitely want to do this since we've given them so much free information <laughs> Tell them about (laughs) Gold Enterprises and about this podcast, because I'm sure between those two, there is so much more of what you just got in this short period of time. Tell us about it, please.
3: Oh, absolutely. I would love to. So, yeah. So let me just say, when I was at my previous institution, I would have a lot of folks outside of higher ed that would ask me some of the similar questions. You know, what do we do? What what skill sets or information is transferable to whatever area. I've um, worked with um, healthcare organizations, whether they're hospitals or whether they're associations. I've worked with nonprofits. I've worked with police departments. You you name it, I've, I've probably worked in some similar industry. And what I so appreciated about them was that they were saying, we need the help of a diversity, equity, and inclusion professional that studied it, that knows what they're doing, they've seen proven results, we realize that higher ed, even as much as we criticize ourselves in higher ed about how far we need to be along, I think oftentimes higher ed is still at least five steps ahead of many other institutions because we have the research tangible. Like Even for us in higher ed, we at least know what we need to be doing. Even if we're not doing, we know what we need to be doing. There are some uh, industries that don't even know what they need to be doing yet or they don't have a uh, baseline language around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so I found that a lot of folks would call me in and say, hey, can you please just you know, get us the right language? We don't even know if we're using the right language. What are the cutting-edge concepts? What's working in hiring practices and so forth? And so from there, I just got a really high demand for people asking about this work, and could you come in and do X, Y, and Z? And so you know, at that time, I had, my sons were much smaller, and so I'm like, I can't justify being away from my boys without actually bringing home something and result of that. So given that it's like, okay, well, maybe I need to make something more formal. Um, and of course, I didn't want a conflict of interest with my day job, of course. And so I created something completely separate. And so, um, gold enterprises, LLC I've had, um, I've had my license since 2016 and I've continued to work with organizations on three different levels. Um, I do the executive coaching piece because there are some folks which I love um, when folks come to me and they say, Hey, I'm in a supervisory position or mid level, even C suite um, senior administration role, it's not the responsibility of the people that I supervise to educate me on these topics. You to help to educate me on some of these topics and kind of give me a roadmap of professional development for my work. So I do that with the executive coaching piece. Then um, the other thing that I do quite a bit, um, I work. Quite a bit with organizations that want full training whether it's for their full staff or senior administration um, and so i think that's extremely important for them because they want a baseline for everyone in their organization to be speaking the same language and have the same concepts um, and then there's quite a bit of executive work that i do specifically around diversity strategic planning so what does it mean to have an entire strategic plan we're not doing this willy-nilly where we're doing one program here and one workshop there but we're actually unfolding an entire plan for the entire organization and what does it look like to both develop that plan and also implement that plan at the same time. Um, and so those plans have lots to do with both um, the historical information, the data, also some aspirational action planning. Then you definitely have to have who's accountable, what's your ass- assessment measures, what's the timeline. So everything that I mentioned before. Um, so that's what I've been doing with the consulting work on the side. But then when it gets to the podcast, this is fun stuff with the podcast because As y'all probably know, especially on my social media and everything, um, I've been a runner now for nine years and I've been a triathlete for six years. And so um, two years ago, um, I met my great friend, uh, Lisa Ingerfeld, as well as my other friend, uh, Sarah Gross, who are both the uh, co-founders of this fantastic um, annual, I guess, conference uh, called Outspoken. And Outspoken, it's kind of a play on words for the spokes on a bike wheel. But outspoken speaks to diversity in triathlon, and I love it because it had an emphasis on women originally, but now it's really unfolding to have multiple identities in the mix. And so they reached out to me. I came and did a um, a couple of workshops with them the first year that they had outspoken. Last year I wasn't able to attend because I had a, a death in the family. Um, but this year in particular, what's been fun is that we tried to figure out a way to invite more people to have conversation about endurance sports and diversity, and probably it's going to be heavily on diversity and lighter on endurance sports. Um, But Lisa and I, Lisa Ingerfeld and I, who's also an academic, um, we both have backgrounds in intercultural communication, DEI work. She comes in um, as a naturalized citizen from the UK. I come in as native to the US from Southern Virginia. And we come together and have these fantastic conversations. And for me, it feels like, and and this is said with the most sugar I can put on it. This feels like your white girlfriend who gets it for a woman of color. Like you don't have to explain A through Z, double A through double Z. It's like, oh, I get it. I understand. I'm not going to overstep my boundaries. I can ask a question without feeling a fool. I can explain it without fully explaining it. We can speak in code, all of that. And so I'm so excited about it. Um, And so Our first podcast will be on September 1st. Yay! Um, And we chose to call the podcast after lots of research and thinking and overthinking it because you can imagine what happens with two PhDs. Um, (laughs) We overthink everything. I know, we overthink everything. The name is Unfazed. And I love the name Unfazed for the podcast because, you know, we thought about the name and the language for it. Uh, We wanted to be unfazed in our approach, meaning that we don't care if we make people uncomfortable with the conversations and the topics that we're talking about. (sighs) We hope that we make folks kind of take a step out of their comfort zone. So we're unfazed by if people feel uncomfortable because they're actually listening to us talk out loud anyway. Um, So we're unfazed if people feel uncomfortable with the topics, but we also wanted to emphasize the unfazed piece that you know, this is not an overnight process of becoming allies to underrepresented populations. It's going to be a phased process. It's going to be stair steps. Um, I jokingly said to Lisa the other day, look, I've been black for 42 years. Okay, so I do not expect anybody to understand blackness after reading white fragility one time, and then they got it. Of course not. That's ridiculous. That That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And so the podcast is situated in a way that we get to talk about these fantastic topics that may or may not overlap with endurance sports, but it gives folks an opportunity to think in ways that they probably haven't thought before. Um, And so part of our tagline is to help people think a little bit further than they've ever thought before. Same thing with running, same thing with cycling, same thing with swimming. Um, And so it's our hope to get people really excited about Unfazed I'm super excited about it because I really prayed hard. I really wanted to do a podcast, but I just didn't have the time or the bandwidth to do all the back-end fun production stuff. And lo and behold, this became an opportunity. So I'm really excited to work with Dr. Lisa and we get to talk about all the juicy stuff and it's going to be really exciting.
2: I cannot wait. I'm excited about this. I'm
3: so excited excited for your podcast. Yeah,
1: I'm excited
3: about this. So I expect both of you to be like our first reviews. Like I just... Before it even before we even drop it, just be like, we know it's gonna be great. We don't even have to listen because we know it's gonna be great. That's what I need y'all to do. Just well, just they're be- here.
2: They're hearing you right now. I mean, this <laughs> is already gold. Like this is definitely one of the best interviews. No that we've pun done. intended.
3: <laughs> no pun <laughs> intended. Right. Right. Exactly.
2: <laughs> but I do want to double back because you didn't give yourself enough credit, and you are a you are not just a triathlete. You are a seventy point three Ironman triathlete, and that is. Huge! That's huge. Well,
3: I can I could run three miles right now if I tried to. <laughs> let me just say, for for someone who's never been athletic in their entire lives, one mile would be a big deal, April. So please do not diminish that one mile. Okay, that that would be a fantastic thing. Um, but yeah, so after I had my oldest son, well, let me take it a step back. I was very overweight before I was pregnant with my first son, and then it just got out of hand from there. So I just stopped looking at the scale once I got to about 230 or so, and I'm only 5'5". And so I just stopped looking at the scale and said, okay, I got to do something about this after he's born. And so I had my oldest son, Trey, Charles Adam Gold III. Um, And so I had Trey. And after that, I said, let me get my whole life together. Okay, I got to get this thing together because this is not good. And so um, I trained for probably about four months for my first 5K. And I said, all I want to do is a 5K. I want to do 3.1. I'm going to run around the National Harbor at night during this glow run, which was meant to be a really fun run. And so I trained for this, did it in October. And I said, oh, this was pretty, well, first of all, I didn't die. Hallelujah. Um, After not dying, I'm like, okay, I might want to do this again. Um, And so I did another and I did a few more and then kind of started building up. Well, the funny in all of this was that, This is the irony of gaining and losing weight. So three weeks after I met my goal weight and I had lost 80 pounds, right? I lost 80 pounds. Three weeks after I hit that 80 pound mark, I found out I was pregnant with my second son. (laughs) Now, I was thrilled because we wanted two sons, right? But that 80 pounds, I was like, oh my goodness, this is going to be interesting. And so um, I I stuck to my plan. I still ran for as long as I could while I was pregnant with my youngest son, Kendrick. Um, I only gained about 25 of that back, which was really great um, because I just, you know, followed doctor's orders. By the way, my doctor was also an Ironman. And so my doctor was like, let me give you exactly what it's safe to do and not do, um, which I thought was pretty cool. And so anyhow, and I didn't know that either until after the fact. Um, And so as I was getting up there, I was about six months pregnant or so with my youngest son. My doctor says, "Um, Shauna, you realize you probably need to cut back on the running because that's going to be really hard on your organs. And, you know, let's think about doing something different. So why don't you think about swimming? I'm like, swim where? Who? (laughs) Me? I don't swim. What are you talking about? I don't even want to put my face in the water. What are you talking about swimming? (laughs) Um, Well, I ended up running much less so my short runs were like two or three miles walking running kind of alternating but I spent most of my time in the pool in fact the day that Kendrick was born I usually get up for these insanely early workouts um the day that Kendrick was born I went to the pool with my training partner my girlfriend who's actually his godmother I went to the pool at 5 a.m that morning and swam um, swam, I forget how many laps. I still had my bracelet on, my workout bracelet and my watch on with my time on it. And as I'm leaving, I go right across the parking lot to a Panera to get some breakfast on my way to work. Now, this is six weeks ahead of time, six weeks ahead of any due date here. So I'm not even thinking that anybody might be coming today, right? And so I'm standing in Panera and This probably is too much information, but I felt a little trickle of something, and then it got worse and worse, and I didn't even recognize what was going on because my oldest son was by a C-section, so I had no clue what it meant to actually give birth to a child, right, by any other means, and so we call my doctor, we rush to the hospital just to make sure everything's okay. We're thinking, oh, it's just going to be a checkup. They're going to send me home to let me sleep, and it's going to be all right. The nurse comes in nice and calm. Oh, well, Mrs. Gold, it looks like we're having a baby today. I'm like, what? No, we're not. I'm going to work. I don't know what you're doing. I'm, I'm going to work. And so, uh, between that 5 a.m. swim and that 11 a.m. second C-section, Kendrick arrived. Um, and so that's what happened. Uh, three months later, I did my very first triathlon because again, I was trying to work all the baby weight off, um, and was addicted from there and just kept building on to longer and longer distances. And, um, I will say that um, when people say that they're an Ironman 70.3 athlete or a full Ironman athlete, it's um, usually not a brag. It's just more the character of doing it. I mean, no one knows really what it feels like to get up at 3, 4, five o'clock in the morning to do a workout by yourself just to see one day possibly happen. Um, and so the, it's just a point of pride and character that you have the diligence and the willpower and just the, the focus to do one thing, even if you never do it again, even if you only do it one time ever in life, you can look back and say that you gave two hundred percent to this one particular thing in life. So that's why I always put it in a bio, and I'm never ashamed of it.
1: I I wouldn't be. Either. I would
3: never be ashamed
1: what? of that.
2: That's amazing. I, I'm talking I'd probably about... lead. I'd hey. lead like my interview with that. <laughs> like, by the way, I'm an Iron Man. What else do you need to know?
1: Uh, uh, tell Tell her what I did when I ran my uh, half marathon.
3: My metal oh, tell, tell me to work? I know that's right. Exactly. I was exactly. like, "What are you doing?" And he's like, "I ran. A, I ran a marathon." I'm like, "Okay, oh, look, I've got here, women. Here you go. I've got my mug. Yes, <laughs> seventy point three mug. Right? It's like but we have a hard time finding a race because
2: he's like, "I'm not going to race unless there's a great medal." <laughs> and I'm like, "Just race."
3: I'm with you. I'm with you completely (laughs) on that. My my first 70.3 medal literally is, I wish you had told me beforehand, I would have shown it. It's like literally this big. I mean, it's almost as big as my head, right? It should be. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you got to have big bling. Big bling. Absolutely. I'm with you 100%, Daryl. I'm with you. You let me know where you racing, okay? I need to know (laughs) your race schedule so I can just show up wherever you are. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh,
1: Well... Where can they find you?
2: Where can they find you? Where can they find you? And we know, listen, Dr. Gold speaks,
3: okay, on Twitter. Absolutely. Absolutely. Tell them where. Absolutely. Dr. Gold speaks on Twitter. Dr. Gold speaks also on Instagram. You can find me on Gold Enterprises, LLC on Facebook. And of course, Shauna Payne Gold on Facebook as well. I'm in LinkedIn, which surprisingly people have been like discovering me quite a bit on LinkedIn, which I think is pretty fascinating because I wasn't even active there until this whole pandemic happened. Um, So yes, you can find me in all those different places. And, you know, now that April and and Daryl and I are all friends, you can always find me through them. So, you know, you got options. Thank Thank you so
1: much. Yeah, you're welcome. you have anything else
2: i have like five million okay but we'll save we'll save that for later
1: for For right now
2: right now until the next time that's it bye bye hey everybody thanks for listening if you enjoyed this episode don't forget to subscribe on any podcast platform and make sure that you rate us also, we do have a YouTube channel if you prefer to watch our antics, and we also provide closed captioning.
1: And if you want to know more about us, go check us out on our website at successinblackandwhite.com, or you can reach out to us directly on social media. My social media handle is I am Daryl Lovett on all platforms.
2: And mine is April Dawn Lovett on all platforms.